open up to the book of Psalms, and we are in Psalm 37. And, and just a quick heads up, we are not covering all 40 verses tonight. I have chosen to take this psalm in several parts, and uh, when we get into it, you'll, you'll understand why and, and see where the Lord is going to take us as a congregation and together. But let's open up with a word of prayer and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Lord, as we gave you our hearts in worship, and uh, Lord, we want to continue to give you our heart, but now as we sit at your feet for the instruction. Father, we know that these are your words. We know that it, it is spoken through your Holy Spirit as you inspired the writers to, to write them down and that you desire for them to have effectual meaning, not only when they were written, but for all time. Because we know that your word never uh, never goes away. It never passes away. It'll always remain. So Lord, we know it's important. We need it for our lives, Father. Speak to us tonight from, from your psalmist from thousands of years ago, Father God. Speak to us right now in our situation. And may we have the strength and the courage to obey your word and to follow it. In Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 37 is another psalm of David. It's a psalm that's written by David, and it's a different kind of psalm. Um, it's an acrostic psalm. Not that we haven't looked at those before, but this acrostic psalm uh, itself doesn't make it unique. It's the fact that this psalm is considered a wisdom psalm. Uh, and because of this changing category on the psalm, there's a lot of contemporary uh, critics that don't believe that David is the author of this psalm. The wisdom psalm is an acrostic. It's an acrostic um, meaning it won't have a linear flow. But what it does is it uses the alphabet at each uh, phrase of the psalm in order to make it more memorable. And it needs to be more memorable because the wisdom is able to be hidden in the heart easier for the reader. And the psalm is an important one to hide in our heart because this psalm deals with life during the seeming triumph of wickedness, the seeming triumph of evil, the seeming, um, how it seems like when we give our life to Christ and we live our life for God, somehow or another, it seems like we're getting the short end of the stick. And so this psalm is instructional and we're going to be looking at, into it in parts. And tonight we're going to start with the first 11 verses. And I've titled my message, actually I changed the title of it. It's not keeping your faith. It's eyes of faith. And we need to have eyes of faith as we, as we learn to deal with this troubling times that we live in, this, this upside down world that we live in, where we see wickedness kind of triumphing before us or perhaps even triumphing against us. We've all been in those times, right? Where we cry out to God for something and it doesn't seem to get answered. I can tell you that our church cried out to God and, and many others across El Paso and, and throughout the country cried out to God for Dan to be healed. But it didn't happen. There's many of us who had folks that we knew that were sick with COVID. We cried out for God to heal them and it didn't happen. We cry out to God for a, a new place to meet in and we're, we're crying out for that and it doesn't seem to happen yet. We see other people, they have no struggle whatsoever. They, they, they're like, they're healed they, they get what they need. They, they seem to prosper in it. And it, it's kind of bothersome sometimes, isn't it? 
it can make us start to go, wait a minute. Am I going the right way? Like, it seems like I'm suffering more than I'm benefiting. Now, David certainly had suffered plenty at the hands of the ungodly. And this psalm comes from David writing as an old man, sharing his wisdom from what he's learned walking his life that he walked, where we know that he was constantly on the receiving end of seemingly wicked things that were against him. And in Psalm 37, 25, it says, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous abandoned or his children begging for bread. And so he's sharing his wisdom with us, how we can keep this at the forefront. Because while it seems like we're being abandoned, while it seems like he's going to leave us without, that's not what's going to happen. Psalm 37 recognizes the frustrating reality that the wicked seems to prosper and the righteous only suffer. And it's unfair, right? We can all be honest. That's unfair. The righteous are trying to live God's way. The wicked reject God and live their own way. Yet the wicked have it better. Maybe you're here tonight. Have you ever been punished for doing the right thing? Have you ever done the right thing and been punished? I, I worked at a job in, in which it was almost expected that you did whatever you could for the company. And they had a uh, manufacturing plant across the border. And they had people that were in charge of making sure that they had a supply chain where the supplies were always kept up, right? Well, there were times where that didn't happen and then they would have the part here in El Paso and they needed to get it over there. Now it's supposed to go through customs. It's supposed to be declared. It's supposed to be taken. They pay taxes on it. They would expect, of course, it was always the unofficial expectation. If they came to you and asked you to cross it, that you would do that. Imagine their appalled look when I said, no. I said, I'm not going to do that. Are you, who's going to bail me out of jail? Who's going who's gonna to pay the fines? They're not going to pay the fines for me. They're going to be like, oh, you should have never done that. But by not doing it, then you severely limit your career. You start, instead of being the guy that, oh, look at this guy. He'll do anything you need. You can count on this guy. He's now, he's the guy that wouldn't even help us. And our lines shut down because of it and blah, blah, blah. So if you're here tonight and you're a good guy and you feel like you always seem to finish last, Psalm 37 is for you. It's good spiritual medicine also for just about any problem that a person may have. Now, there's a story about a little boy who wanted to wash his cat. And so the boy went to the store and he bought some Tide detergent. And the cashier said to the boy, it's so nice of you to run errands for your mom. Or for your parents. Do you do the laundry at your house? The old boy said, I'm not doing laundry. I'm washing my cat. Cashier explained to the boy, Tide is not good for washing cats. But he refused to listen. The next time the boy came to the store, the cashier asked him, how's your cat? And the boy hung his head in sadness. And he said, my cat died. And cashier said, I'm so sorry to hear that your cat died. Did he die from the tide you washed it with? He said, no, I don't think the tide killed the cat. 
I think it was the spin cycle. <laughs> when life bombards us with problems, when those things seem to happen to us, when life's stresses washes over us in waves, life starts to feel like we're in the spin cycle, right? And the spin cycle killed the cat and the spin cycle can kill us. At least can start killing our faith, can it? If we let it. It can kill us either quickly or slowly just by sucking the life out of us, continuously coming over us where we just seem like we can't get our head above water. Psalm 37 provides God-given, David-battle-tested wisdom and a plan of action for keeping our eyes of faith. Starting in verse 1, David writes, he says, do not be agitated by evildoers. Do not envy those who do wrong for they wither quickly like grass and wilt like tender green plants. Trust in the Lord and do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act making your righteousness shine like the dawn and your justice like the noonday. Be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. Do not be agitated by one who prospers in his way, by the person who carries out evil plans. Refrain from anger and give up your rage. Do not be agitated. It can only bring harm. For evildoers will be destroyed, but those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked person will be no more. Though you look for him, he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and he will enjoy abundant prosperity. And so in order for us to keep our eyes of faith, there's certain things that we need to do. One of those things is we do not need to look around us to keep our eyes of faith. And there's several statements in which David talks about what not to do. And they all deal with looking around us. You, you won't keep your faith by looking at things around you. He says, do not be agitated by evildoers and do not envy those who do wrong. In verse seven, he says, do not be agitated by one who prospers in his way or by the person who carries out evil plans. And he says, refrain from anger and give up your rage. Do not be agitated. It can only bring harm. And David says, do not be agitated. Okay, the word agitated can also be translated to fret, worry. Don't fret or worry because of evildoers that's what we do, right? We look around us, we're looking around us and we're like, why is this the way it is? Why are the evildoers doing this? Why are the wicked getting away with, why is it like this? The verb for agitate has a much stronger meaning though, as, as in burning with anger. Literally the admonition is to not become hot because of evildoers. Don't get worked up. Don't lose your cool. Don't get heated over them. And then David delivers another admonishment right alongside that first one. 
He says, don't envy those who look wrong. Both those things have to do with looking around you and looking out at the world. We will lose our eyes of faith if we look out at the world and we look at the things happening around us and the things happening to us and we're looking out for that to, to substantiate our faith. Are we looking to that to substantiate our faith because we're going, oh, I'm waiting to see this court ruling. And based on how this court ruling goes, well, that's if, you know, everything's going right or everything's going wrong. And if everything's going wrong, then where's my faith? We can't look out at the world and expect it all to be going right. We're already told by God that it's not going to be that way yet. So don't get agitated and worked up at the evildoers. But then he says also, neither should you envy them. How many of us have looked out and seen somebody prospering and we're like, oh, well, maybe I should do that. The number one way I can think of that people probably look that way is, is when it comes to taxes, when it comes to, well, if I just choose not to tell them this, I don't have to pay this extra money or I don't have to do this or and it has a sense of being dishonest to the point where we gain from it because we see others gaining from it. And we're like, why should I pay my fair share when nobody else is? He talks about evildoers doing wrongs. These are wrongs that are done with malice and injustice in mind. So if you jump down to verse seven to see the second statement, David again admonishes to not be agitated. This gives us a clue to the evildoers and those who are doing wrong and why it's agitating. He says, don't be agitated by one who prospers in his way, by the one who carries out evil plans. That's where you get agitated. That's where you get heated. That's where these feelings come from, where envy could be a problem because not only are they doing wicked and evil, but they're prospering from it. They're getting away with it. I burn with anger when I see somebody getting away with evil. I'm like, they should be punished. We're still waiting for certain people to face indictments and, and go before congressional hearings and things like that. We're still waiting for those who have served in office many years ago that have um, used foundations and the monies that go into foundations for the wrong way. We're waiting for them to face justice and it makes us burn with anger. And then we have to guard against the envy because there are times where we, where we start to go, oh, maybe I should do that. They're getting away with it. Maybe I should do that. And here, here, here's the thing. You can't keep your faith by looking around you for things to work out. If you try to keep your faith by looking around you for things to work out, Whenever we pray for God to heal somebody and he doesn't, our faith is in jeopardy. Whenever we pray for God to, sh to, to make something right and it doesn't happen right now, our faith is in jeopardy. Whenever we ask God to vindicate us, maybe, maybe we're being um, persecuted in a certain way and we, we look for God to vindicate us and he doesn't yet, our faith is in jeopardy. Because right now, is not the time for all things to be worked out. 
It's not the time for things to be worked out. God has set aside a time for that, but this is not that time. Instead, you might be tempted and envious now of the evildoers. You may get angry and decide, hey, you know what? Nice guys finish last. So I don't want to be a nice guy anymore. This is the same person. So if you take this Psalm and you invert the numbers, you get Psalm 73. And this is the same person, Asaph, who says, I almost slipped when I looked at the wicked because they seemed to prosper. How can we not fret? How can we not get worked up when we see evil triumphs and goes unchecked? As David says, refrain from anger. Give up rage. He says, don't be agitated. And he says, when you do all those, because when you do all those things, he says, here's the result of that. It only brings harm. So to refrain, it means to stop. And and the word literally is discontinue what you're already doing. Because the Lord knows us very well. He says, refrain from being, it's like, stop being angry. Don't do it any longer. Discontinue it. He says, don't be agitated. Give up your rage. Give up your fury. Give up your intense anger. Because it can only bring harm. That word harm, you could translate it literally to be an evil act. So it's not like you're going to get harmed from it, but what it's going to do is it's going to lead you down the wrong path, which is harmful. If you don't give up your rage, if you don't give up your anger, if you don't cease being agitated, it will only lead to you committing something that is morally wrong. Go visit and and do jail ministry and talk to people that are in jail. Most people are in jail over a moment of rage. A slip of judgment because they were upset at the injustice that they were seeing. Instead, what we need to do is, as Ephesians 4.26 says, is be angry and do not sin. Many think that anger itself is a sin. We can be angry all we want. As long as we do nothing with that anger, don't act out in that anger. Don't lash out in that anger. Be angry, but do not sin. Or if we're able to, and we have the Holy Spirit working within us, we can do as James said. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Because human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Our anger will never accomplish the righteousness of God. I forget which uh, philosopher it was that said this, but it says that the, uh, the hardest part about being angry and, and being righteous in your anger is being angry for the right thing in the right amount with the right response towards it. And it, it's impossible to have that. And then one suggests also that this anger is almost certainly going to be directed towards God. When we look out and we get agitated because of the evil and the wickedness that we see around us, then the, the response, the reason why we shouldn't get angry is because usually that anger comes out and is directed towards God. How could you, God? 
Why would you, God? Are you there, God? Are you hearing me? Are you, where are you, God? It's a possibility if we don't check our anger and stop the envy and agitation before it brings us to committing that act. And here's just a few things that Christians get angry and rage at. And I'm going to step on some toes here. Rights. And I'll be the first to admit, I get angry about my rights. My rights. They're mine. But we as Christians shouldn't get angry to the point where we start to go, why God? Like, we need to control that anger. We need to give up our rage. Abortion. There's many different reasons to get angry with abortion, depending on your situation. Number one is because it's morally uh, just abhorrent. But we don't know the, the situation that everybody has faced, but we're against the act itself, the choice itself. But how come it is that when somebody has an abortion and they choose not to raise that child and then they go off and they're, they're able to continue their life without the child and their life is great and they seem to prosper from that choice. Whereas then there's someone who has chosen not to have an abortion and they struggle all through life. It's so hard to make ends meet. It's so hard to raise the kid. It's so hard to do. It, it's hard not to get angry at that. There's Christian groups that are dedicated to the whole um, fighting for um, abolishing abortion to the point where they get so mad, they go out and they pick at churches and they pick at the uh, abortion clinics. And their anger is so much, they're just mad at everybody. We get angry with sexual deviance. And I, and I put that out there to encompass everything all the way from a, any deviance uh, sexually that we people have come up with. We get angry at trafficking. Human, human trafficking, uh, just abhorrent. We get angry with politics and policy. We get angry with movies and programming. We get angry with schooling. We get angry with the CRT being taught there. We get angry with the BLM movements and things like that. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be against the things that are go against God and whatnot, but let us not be rageful towards these things. So how do we keep our cool when evil's running rampant and prospering? How do we not get agitated when we see that happening? Well, David tells us don't look around us, but instead we need to look above us. In verses three through seven, David says, trust in the Lord, do what is good, dwell in the land and live securely, take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act, making your righteousness shine like the dawn and your justice like the noonday. Be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. You see, in order to keep cool, not be agitated while evil prospers, is to get our eyes off the wicked, off even ourself, and lock them onto the Lord. Corey Tim Boom said, if, if you look around, you'll get distressed. If you look inside, you'll get depressed. But if you look up, 
It's when you look up that you have the hope. It's when you look up that he takes away all that feeling. And so David lists several ways on how we get our eyes off of everything else and onto the Lord. And every single way that he lists encompasses living our life for God. Living your life for God despite what happens around you and despite what happens to you. Number one, and I don't think there's any uh, specific order, but I think the Lord purposely put this one first. The number one important thing is to trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Trust by believing. Trust by having faith in the Lord. Now, this isn't some easy breezy optimism, right? This isn't just like, oh, it's all going to turn out. It's trusting the Lord because he said it's all going to turn out. He says, I'm going to do this. And so we trust the Lord. We continue to trust him. We continue to trust him even when it seems like nothing's happening. It's an abiding reliance on God to trust him and trust in him. Trust involves our faith and faith involves action. So trust in the Lord and do what is good. You cannot trust, or I'm sorry, you cannot separate trusting God from doing good. We do good because we trust God. We do good from our faith in God. This is what James is talking about when he says, you can't have faith without works. Faith without works is dead. You can't show trust in God if you're not willing to act in that trust of God. So when we're tempted to walk in the path of the wicked because they're prospering, it's because we've stopped trusting God. We start going, wait a minute. This path can get me what I want as opposed to God. We start going, wait a minute. What I really want is this not what God says I need. We stop trusting God. We start going, God's holding out on me. God just doesn't want me to be happy. All I am to God is the ant on the anthill and he's got the magnifying glass. We stop trusting God that he's going to work it all out. When the bills come in and we're counting up our money and we're going, wait a minute, none of this is going to add up. Well, maybe I'll just cut some corners because everybody else does it. No, when we trust God, we see all the evil, we see all the wickedness, and you know what? We do good anyway because we trust God. We have an abiding faith in God. And here's the thing. If you're losing your faith and trust in God because of evil prospering, look to see if you've stopped doing what's good. A lot of times it goes hand in hand. We stop doing good because we stop trusting. And when we stop trusting, we start losing our faith in God. And so David then adds, he says, also dwell in the land and live securely. That's what I want to do. But evil's prospering. How do I dwell in the land and live securely? Do, have you been to my neighborhood? I live on the other side of the train tracks, so to speak. I was like, wow, that's a funny statement. What he means is dwell in the land 
because God has called you to that land. He's speaking to the Israelites who are dwelling in the land of Israel, but they have enemies all around them, constantly trying to kick them out of the land, constantly trying to take them out of the land. He says, no, dwell in the land. He says, live securely. This is it. Live securely with a steadiness. He says, be immovable. Be fixed upon your position. This means when evil's happening around you, you don't participate. You don't even get enticed. Jonathan Edwards has two resolutions. Resolution number one, I will live for God. Number two, if no one else does, I still will. This is dwelling in the land and living securely not being moved because of anything that happens to you, but continuing to live securely and being immovable because your trust in God is abiding. And so the next thing then David says, take delight in the Lord. Trust in God becomes easy when you delight in God. Have you ever noticed that you trust the people that you like the most? The people that bring you the most joy, you trust them. We are to have the highest degree of pleasure in the Lord. And when you do this, David says, God is going to give you your heart's desires. Some misread this. Some read this as, if you delight in the Lord, God will give you whatever you want. Whatever your heart desires. But if you read it, it says, God will give your heart its desires. Meaning he will change the desires of your heart. He will give you the desires that are good, that follow after him, that go after him. When we're delighting in God, our heart's desires become in line with his desires. And when we delight in the Lord, we're not tempted to be envious of the wicked. We're not tempted to be envious of the person who is prospering. We're not tempted by what ways they're following that seem to be prospering. You see, when we're delighting in the Lord, we have our heart's desires and we do not need to envy the wicked. We envy the wicked when we stop delighting in the Lord. And so we must also, as David says, we have to commit our ways to the Lord. And this means dedicated trust in our life and the direction of life to the Lord. We need to commit our ways to the Lord. We have all sorts of hopes and dreams for our lives, right? We, we start off and, and we're raised to, to have a plan for our life. We're going to go to school. We're going to go to college or trade school or this or that. We're, we're going to get married. We're going to have kids. We're going to have this. We're going to have th- commit your ways to the Lord. Maybe the Lord is calling you instead to be a missionary overseas. Everybody's worst fear. If I give my life to God, he's going to call me overseas. Worse yet, he might call you to a life of singleness. You may want to go overseas and be a missionary. He may call you to be a wife and have kids. Commit your ways to the Lord. So that when things happen, you go, 
It's the Lord bringing it to my life. It's the Lord. God, my life is committed to you. Whatever you bring, I'll take. Whatever you don't bring, I'll give up. But I'm committed to you. When you trust in him, the promise is is he will act. So it says that he's good and righteous and he's, he's promised to act and he will act on behalf of his people and those who commit their ways to him. As I said, when we commit our way to the Lord, we accept the things that happen as being from the Lord or allowed from the Lord for a specific purpose and reason. And these things, we begin to understand they're not capricious. They're not without reason. They're not without purpose. We begin to believe Paul, as he writes, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. But then we also start to live as Joseph, where Joseph, when he saw his brothers years after they had sold him into slavery, years after he went to prison in the innocent man, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result. Let me break down for you what world would look like if I was God. If I was God, I would have answered Joseph's prayer to not be sold into slavery. The land would have been robbed of the one person who had the wisdom to follow God to save them from a famine. There's other prayers throughout the Bible that we see in which people get into a tough situation. And I would have been like, man, I want to see that prayer answered. I would answer that prayer without the foresight of God. Maybe as God, I wouldn't have chosen to send my own son to come and die on the cross, thereby robbing the entire world of the only savior who could save them from their sins. When we commit our ways to God, we're committing our ways to understanding that God knows better than we do. And what may have been evil planned against us, perhaps God is planning it for good to bring about a present result, a future result that we don't know yet. God will literally accomplish and put into effect entirely and thoroughly, and he's going to do it. Maybe, maybe you're enduring this wickedness happening against you, and you want to stand, and you want to fight back, and you want to rage against them, and go, wait a minute, you don't even know. I'm, I'm vindicated here. Commit your way to the Lord, and it says that he will act when you trust in him to make your righteousness shine like the dawn It's been a long time since I've done it. But when I was younger, it was much easier to do it. You stay up all night. I would, I would be out gallivanting around the city and whatnot. All the ungodly hours of the night. And then that time of dawn came. And everything that once was hidden in darkness, that first light of dawn just lights everything up. He says, that's what it'll be like. That's how he'll reveal your righteousness. It will shine like the dawn. And he says, and your justice, like the noonday. The noonday, when the sun is up at the highest part of the sky in which there is no shadow cast. The word commit 
is literally to roll over. Roll over everything onto the Lord every day and let him act on your behalf. Just roll it over to him. And the last thing David says in, in these verses is that we are to be silent before the Lord. Now, this isn't some weird, you know, um, vow of silence in which you never speak before the Lord again. This isn't, if you say anything, then it's not going to happen. It, it is without sound before the Lord, but not in the sense of not talking or that he doesn't want to listen to you or that you annoy him. The silence is in the sense that there's nothing left to say because it's indicative that before the Lord, you're at peace. You've committed your way to him. You've trusted in him and, and he works on your behalf. And so you're at peace. And when we're silent before the Lord, we're at peace. You see, the silence before the Lord is where we're at rest because we committed our ways to him and now we rest. I feel like the Lord is really speaking to me on this part because here's what I do. I commit the things to the Lord and then I continue to work furiously as if I had never even turned anything over to him. And it's not restful. But we need to get to the point where we commit it to him and we can rest. The only thing I can relate it to is um, there were two points in my life where I was laid off from my job. The first time caught me off guard completely, and, and I didn't rest. The very, ne the very next work day, I got up, I got dressed as if I was going to work, and I went out looking for a job, and I wore myself out crazy. They gave me seven weeks of severance pay, more or less. I can't say exactly, more or less. And I had four weeks of vacation, and I didn't use any of it to rest. I had been working nonstop for several years, just had kids, just got married, and I didn't rest. The second time I got laid off, I didn't get as much severance. I had about half as much vacation time. But I went home and I took a nap because I committed that to the Lord. It, it's just this idea that he's got it. God is now carrying the burden. There's no reason for you to continue to carry it. It's a calm surrender when you give it over to God. You give him the control and you give him the outcome. And you get the peace. And lastly, he says, wait upon the Lord. But wait expectantly. Wait expectantly for him. You see, true faith and true trust waits confident that God will fulfill all of his promises, all that he said that he'd do. Abraham chose to trust in God and not look around at his situation to determine if what God had said would happen. He trusted God because God said it. Paul recounts this in Romans 4.19 as he's talking about being uh, justified by faith. It says he, Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to already be dead. See, God had just promised him, through your seed, I'll bring forth 
a nation. Abraham didn't go, wait a minute. I'm 90. Sarah's even older. He was about 100 years old, and, and he, con- he didn't even consider the deadness of Sarah's. He believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. It says in Romans 4.20, he did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith, and he gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to do. When we wait for him, it's expectantly. Looking forward to the arrival of him. And there's two ways that God will arrive when we wait on him expectantly. Number one, he's going to show up in our situation. And number two, he's promised that he's going to show up physically here on earth. And so we wait for him because that is the day that he promised. He's going to put it all away. He's going to put everything right. That's the day we look for everything to be right in the world. And the waiting gets us ready for the last thing we need to do to keep our faith in such wicked and troublesome times. We need to remember to look ahead. We need to have the long view. Verse two, David says, don't don't be agitated, don't envy them, why? For they wither quickly like grass and wilt like tender green plants. In verse 9, he says, For evildoers will be destroyed, but those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. And he finishes off where we're looking at in verse 10 and 11. A little while, and the wicked person will be no more. Though you look for him, he won't be there. But the humble will inherit the land and enjoy abundant prosperity. It is so easy for us to get off track looking around and seeing the wicked prosper. And it's enough to get our blood hot, boiling hot. And it's because we can't simply see the end. We don't see how things play out. But God has told us the end of all things. And so it's important that we have that long view in mind. It's important that we have the eternal perspective. The evil that seems to prosper. The evil that seems worthy of envy now. We want to look at them and we're like, man, they're getting everything that I want. We have to temper it with the truth of the matter. Like the psalmist Asaph in Psalm 73, he says, I almost slipped because the wicked prospered. He says, until I went into the sanctuary and I remembered their end. When we see the wicked prosper, know this. It's the closest to heaven they'll ever get. It's the closest to heaven they'll ever get. And all the evil that happens against us, all the wicked that happens to us, that's the closest we'll ever see of hell. We have to temper when we look out and we see those things that distress us with the truth of the matter, that life is temporary and fleeting. The things that we think we want out of this life, they're all temporary. And so the evil, they'll wither quickly like grass, they'll wilt like tender plants. Now grass is said to wither 
when the sun is blocked out, even for a little bit. In fact, if you play golf, there is a rule that they have that encompasses this idea because they have this, this rule. You cannot stand on the green in a place where your shadow casts across the line that the ball has to the cup. Because supposedly that little bit of shadow causes the grass to wither and wilt that fast. Isaiah 47 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, people are grass. Have an eternal perspective. Evildoers will be destroyed. Those who hope in the Lord, they will inherit the land. The wicked will be no more. The humble will inherit the land and enjoy the abundant prosperity. The phrase, a little while. He says, the, that, that phrase that he says, a little while, in verse 10. It's the comparison, how it looks now to how it will be. It seems like we'll always have the wicked with us. It seems like the wicked are always prospering. It seems like the wicked are always getting away with it. But in that little amount of time, that is this life, when you get to the end and you consider it against all of eternity, a little while, the day is coming when all the wrongs of earth will be righted and at that time the evildoers shall be cut off. The trusting saints will possess all the blessings that God has promised. And even if you look diligently for the wicked, you will not find them. When will that day come? For the church, that day comes when the Savior descends into the clouds to catch us away. The Latin version says to rapture his waiting people and take them to their heavenly home. For God's promised, uh, uh, for God's chosen people, the Israelites, that day will happen when the Lord Jesus returns to earth with his saints to decimate his foes and reign for a thousand years during the, of peace during the millennial reign that is promised to Israel, in which they will have a king once again. The time of the Gentiles will be over and the time of the end will be there. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the humble for they will inherit the earth. Now, keeping your eyes of faith is not a one-time thing. Some days we need to go through changing the direction we're looking at several times. Things happen to us, coming at us constantly, and we're like, wait a minute, as I look around, this is crazy. Remember the wisdom that's here in Psalm 37. Come back to Psalm 37. We can continue to come here and enjoy God's presence and God's peace, even in the storms of life. And not only can we survive the spin cycle, but we might even come out of it clean. And we can also experience what Jesus was talking about when Jesus said in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, neither let it be fearful. Father God, we come before you tonight, Lord, and as we consider this, Lord, help us to have 
to strengthen and to keep our eyes of faith, Lord. Help us to avoid looking at the world around us to answer and to, to prove to us anything, but Lord, that we would look instead to you. Help us to keep our eyes on you, Father God, and our focus for eternity. May we never envy the wicked, nor be tempted to do wrong. Help us to delight in you, Father. And Lord, for those of us that our eyes of faith are not even open yet, when Jesus walked the earth, he would ask men, what is it that you want? And while they were physically blind and they said, I want to see, how many more are spiritually blind that they need their eyes opened? Jesus has promised that he would open the eyes of the blind. Maybe we can't see what the end has. Maybe we can't see what it is that God is doing. Christ says, come to me and I will open your eyes. If that's you, you can come before Jesus and say, Lord, open, open my eyes. Let me to see my state separated from God because of the sin that I have. Open my eyes to see that you are the one who died on the cross, giving yourself to cover my sins, offering me forgiveness. Open my eyes to see that I need you as my savior. And the Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Save me from my sins. Be my Lord and Savior. And help me to stop living for what I see around me. And instead look up and see the Lord. And live for him. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.